How many of you had, uh, what's the camp I was at in October? Camp Horizon. How many of you saw me there? All right, just remind me because this will determine the story or not. Uh, did I tell you the story about the uh, shrimp? No. All right. I don't know if that's a good thing or a bad thing, but uh, um, just about ready to go here. Cool. So, give you a little background speaking to you this weekend, and I, I appreciate you coming out. This is a uh, kind of a wacky week in the world, right? Lots of strange. Not strange. Lots of terrible things going on in the world. Um, I know the last I heard was they had gotten one of them and the other one was still on the lamb. Is that still the case? Yeah. Um, we seem to live in a world that, uh, particularly in the West, that has lost the whole idea of what, what uh, truth is. In fact, we don't even know if there is such a thing as truth. Watch our uh, programs. I was watching CNN in the airport, and uh, the reporter was so hesitant to say that these two guys were Islamic terrorists. I mean, everything seems to be pointing that direction, and, and um, but we're so worried about being politically correct and not offending folks that we uh, we seem to walk on eggshells. And certainly, when it comes to matters of religion, we don't want to offend anybody. And and uh, and I, I get that. I understand it. You don't want to. Uh, hurt people's feelings, but at the same time, you don't want to let truth go by the wayside as part of being sensitive to others. But anyway, tonight we're going to look at whatever happened to the truth, and is there such a thing as a truth, and how can you know that there is such a thing as truth? Um, but before we do that, this weekend we're going to do lots of different things. We'll talk about some of the latest scientific discoveries that confirm your scripture, confirm your Bible as being a supernaturally engineered book. Um, there's things that God has put in the Bible to authenticate that the message is from Him. And some of those things are prophecy. You have Bible predicting things that were going to occur, in some cases hundreds, hundreds of years ahead of time, in other cases thousands of years ahead of time. Some of that is also the scientific knowledge you find in the Bible. That the Bible seems to know things about the world around us thousands of years before modern science catches up. We're going to do some of that tomorrow. Uh, we're also going to look at some of the recent and some of the not so recent overwhelming evidence in the archaeological space that shows your Bible is, is reliable. So we'll do that tomorrow and then going on to Sunday um, we'll, we'll expand some of that stuff. But anyway, I want to tell you who it is that's talking to you this weekend uh, so you get a feel of what my background is and, and, um, and at least get to know me a little bit better since I'll be yakking at you as much as I am. Uh, as you know, my name is Rob Sullivan. I actually work for Morgan Stanley. Uh, Morgan Stanley is an uh, investment bank in New York. Um, Morgan Stanley was the largest employer in the Trade Center. Uh, we had 3,684 people in, uh, in the World Trade Center. We were primarily in the South Tower, although we had some folks in the North Tower. Uh, but Morgan Stanley is a big company, and um, you know, they own tons of things you'd never think an investment bank owns. They own 20 nuclear power plants in the U.S. They own the largest fleet of oil tankers in the world. At one point, they own more airlines than any more aircraft than anybody in the world. Uh, they would lease the aircraft to Delta Airlines and to Aeroflot, and they, were, they had their hands in everything. We're not so much in all those things right now, but but one of the nice things about working for Morgan Stanley, uh, they hired me back in '96, 
was that they instantly wanted to send you on an overseas trip. They wanted you to learn the culture of Morgan Stanley. Talking about nice, right? You're right out of school, and they're going to send you on an overseas trip. And um, so right off the bat, a year into working for the company, they sent me to Japan. And one of the things that I had dreaded about going to Japan, I mean, I think Japanese history is fascinating. I think uh, uh, Japan is such interesting, interesting place to go. But I'm not a big seafood person. You know, I, uh, I was really happy when Nancy had lots of chicken and potatoes and carrots and then uh, uh, Esther made corn casserole. That was right up my alley. And I've kind of grown to like uh, seafood and, uh, more, but not when I first went to Japan. And they're an island country, right? They just do seafood all the time. So the Japanese are so hospitable. So I fly out on Friday morning. And uh, you know how it works. When you're flying east to west, you're flying into the jet stream, right? So the flight takes a little bit longer than when you're flying back. Do you know that when you go from New York to Narita, from JFK to, to Tokyo, uh, it takes about 14 and a half hours to get there nonstop. Planes sucking fumes by the time it lands in Narita. You know how long it takes that plane to get back? About 11 and a half hours. It'll shave three hours off just with the jet stream pushing the aircraft along. Um, uh, anyway, so I get to Japan. I fly out on Friday, arrive Saturday because you lose a day, right? You know, the Japanese are so hospitable. They show up at the airport. The, my coworkers, they show up at the airport just to greet me. They take get me to my hotel. Hotel's about two hours away. Tokyo's about two hours away from the airport. Um, so I get to the uh, hotel and they say, tomorrow morning we're going to take you out for lunch, you know, for brunch. So we'll be back tomorrow morning. So wonderfully hospitable people. And uh, so Sunday morning comes. And I'm dreading, I know it sounds crazy, but I'm dreading the brunch because I've heard about you know, Japanese meals, sushi, this thing called sushi, right? I never had sushi in my life. I heard it was raw fish. So they take me out to a wonderful lunch, and they say, hey, we're going to take you to a Chinese restaurant. I'm like, oh, I know what Chinese food is. I can handle Chinese food. I like Chinese food, right? I'm going to get General Chow's chicken. You know? <laughs> well, <laughs> Chinese food over there is not the same as Chinese food here. So they take me out to this restaurant, Yuko Moriyuki-san, these uh, uh, two Japanese nice ladies, take me out for brunch, and they give me this menu. This is now Sunday mid-morning. And the menu, is all, the menu is all in kanji script, Japanese writing. And I'm looking at this, like, they're not going to help me too much, you know. Um, but sure enough, penciled in the corner, in English, is what the thing is that you're eating. I guess they had enough Americans coming through or Brits coming through. So the one word that I can clearly make out is shrimp. So I'm like, at least I know what that is. I don't know what these other things are, but I know what shrimp is. And you dip it in the cocktail sauce, right? You know? So I said, well, that, that'll be what I have. Now, I hadn't learned the ways of when you're in a foreign country, let them kind of choose the things, and that wasn't occurring to me. So anyway, a little while later, they bring out this bowl. They put it right in front of me. And it's a bowl filled with whiskey. And inside is this little guy, not so little, swimming around. <laughs> and I'm thinking to myself, what in the world did I get myself into here? And I'm looking at him, and he's looking at me. And he's swimming around. And I'm thinking, can they honestly eat this thing this way? So I thought, OK, what am I going to do? They're getting whatever there is that they're ordering. So I thought, all right, how bad could it be? <laughs> right? 
They do it. So I said, just do it quick. You know, stick your hand in there, chase them around. <laughs> so sure enough, I said, just whatever you do, don't look at him. Now, I had never seen a shrimp with everything before. I didn't know they had legs and big antenna and <laughs> shells. So I look at this thing guy. I guess he was a boy. I don't know what he was. But he, he was swimming around. And I said, stick your hands in there and grab him. Now, I'm chasing this thing. He knows it's coming. I grab a hold of him. And I say, whatever you do, don't. Don't look. Don't look. Don't look. <laughs> I'm telling you, I looked at this thing. And he had all his ten legs or whatever they are braced to keep from going into this mouth of mine. So I'm like, oh, man. So I shove him in my mouth. I'm telling you, those things just won't die. I'm crunching, and he's racing to the other side. Things are moving, grabbing the top of my throat. Finally, I said, pin him up against the side of your mouth with your tongue and take your molars and just give him a good go. Stuff shot all over the place. <laughs> oh, it's horrendous. Tennis sticking out of my mouth. Gulp. I swallow this hideous thing, and across the table are my two Japanese hosts, and their eyes are as wide as saucers. <laughs> and Yuko Moriyuki-san, she says, uh, Robasan, uh, you like that? <laughs> and I said, um, no. <laughs> she goes, they're just showing you it's fresh. <laughs> it's going to die in the whiskey. It's going to kill it, and they're going to cook it for you. So I just want you to know who it is that's going to be preaching to you <laughs> this weekend and how bright I am. But uh, anyway, um, let's watch a video. Yeah. I think I showed this video. Well, we'll see. Matt will tell me. At the end, I'm going to come back and tell you a story about my dog. Um, this looks an awful lot like my dog, except I had a shepherd who was all black. But I'll, I'll, we'll get back to that at the end. But anyway, enjoy the video. Let's, hopefully the audio works. Food. You know, I just couldn't stop thinking about it. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, you know, I, I went to the fridge and I opened up the meat drawer. You know what the meat drawer is, right? Yes. What was in there? Well, I'll tell you what was in there. You know that bacon that's like maple? It's got maple flavor. The maple kind, yeah. Yeah, so yeah. I took that out, and I thought, yeah. I know who would like that. Me. So I ate it. Oh, no. You're kidding me. Nope. Not kidding. You know, I also noticed there was some beef in there. Yeah, you know, steak. You know, juicy. Well, I ate that, too. <laughs> but I went back to the fridge just a few minutes ago. And I put something together really special. You're going to love this one. I took some chicken. Yeah. I put some yeah, I yeah. put some cheese on it. And I 
covered it with... Covered it with what? I covered it with cat treats. Yeah. Then guess what? What? I gave it to the cat. <laughs> it's a pretty funny sight. The talking beaver is pretty good, too. Um, Here's a question for you. Is that dog really talking? What's happening? No doubt the guy's talking to the dog about food, right? And the dog's starting to salivate. And they're matching up. They're writing the script after the dog has moved its mouth to match, kind of match what the dog is saying, right? The dog's not speaking. You know that that dog's not speaking, right? <laughs> I mean, he's, he's definitely interested in food. I have no doubt about that. But uh, he's not speaking. It's not real. It's fake. It's not real. It's fake. I know I did this with the guys at uh, the camp. We'll play a game with you. I want you to tell me whether the photo is real or fake. All right? Did somebody Photoshop it and rig the picture? Or is this a real, genuine photo? Let's see how good you are. By the way, if I remember right, not one person had every single one right um, but, uh, at the camp, but we'll see. Um, all right, who thinks that Jaws was there visiting the uh, Sea Patrol when they were doing their test in front of uh, the Golden Gate Bridge? Who thinks it's real? You think it's real? Who thinks it's fake? Okay, it's clearly fake. Somebody has photoshopped Jaws, <laughs> stuck him in below the uh, Black Hawk. Uh, it's not real. That's not a real photo. I bet the diver's happy. That's not a real photo. All right, here's who here remembers Ranger Rick. Ranger Rick. What what is Ranger Rick? Yeah, you remember what type of critter he was? Raccoon. That's right. All right, who thinks this raccoon? Well. You just tell me if you think it's real. <laughs> Who thinks the raccoon is holding mittens? Think that's a real photo or fake? Who thinks it's real? Who thinks it's fake? You're not doing either one because you learned your lesson on the first one. All right, Ranger Rick really can't stand on two legs like that, so that's a fake cartoon. He's photoshopped. Now, everybody but Dave Bosworth can answer this one. This is supposedly taken in Iraq. These are two spiders grabbing a hold of each other uh, in Iraq. Uh, think spiders really get to be that big? Who thinks, you see the body up here and the body down here? They're grabbing a hold of each other. Who thinks they're really that big of spiders uh, in the Middle East? Who thinks the spider has been blown up just a little bit? Believe it or not, that's real. They get to be that big. They're called camel spiders. <sighs> world's biggest dog. You want to see the world's biggest dog? All right, real or not real? <laughs> Who thinks, what's a good dog name? Skipper. Uh, <laughs> who thinks Skipper got to be that big? 
All right, how many think it's fake? How many think it's real? Okay, it's fake. He's blown up a little bit there. All right, who's gotten everyone right so far? Okay, we're thinning out the herd. Next one. Got to have, if we have the world's biggest dog, what else do we have to have? World's biggest cat. Who thinks mittens had a little too much to eat? Now look at Morris the cat. Remember Morris and Nine Lives? All right, who thinks Morris has really got to be that big? Who thinks that's a little bit played with? All right, believe it or not, that cat's real. That cat's not been having tender vittles, that's for sure. World's largest <laughs> uh, alligator. Caught just uh, eight miles up the road. Huh? <laughs> Who thinks that that's 18 feet long? Who thinks that we actually caught an alligator that's 18 feet long? All right, you're all from Florida, so I can't pull this off on you. This is real. This was caught somewhere. I don't. I think it was caught in Texas, actually, not here. But um, all right, this is in Jordan. These are skeletal remains that were unearthed in. I'm sorry, not Jordan, Turkey. How many think that we really unearthed skeletons this big? How many think that's real? How many think it's fake? Totally fake. <laughs> Tornado next to uh, Liberty Island. How many think that's real? Fake? All right, that's fake. Just a couple more. This is probably the most famous fake photograph uh, coming out of 9-11. Not enough time to get the photo down. Uh, that's clearly fake. Um, let's see how good you are at this one. Dog crumbs across a porcupine. All right, how many thinks this is a little overdone? How many thinks that Rover had a really bad day? Okay, the good news is that he didn't lose his eyes, he didn't lose his nose, he just had a lot of cuts. The bad news is that's a real photo. Okay, and this is every, this is every parent of a teenager's nightmare. Heard of body piercing? All right, how many think it's real? Thankfully, it's not. It's photoshopped. Long Island Sound, fish washed up supposedly four years ago. How many think that's real? Looks like Don King. Is that what you said? It does look like Don King. All right, it's totally fake. There's no real fish like that that washed up. Uh, Coconut crab off of Chesapeake Bay. Two more of these. How many think that there are coconut crabs that get to be that big? How many think they may get that big, but that's not a photo of one? Believe it or not, that's a real, genuine photo of a coconut crab. And this is my favorite of all time.
I mean, who takes a cat in a sea People must not really like cats. All right, who thinks Muffy went for a ride on the sea As much as I want to believe this is real, it's fake. Anybody get them all right? You got a couple, you got them all right? That's pretty good. Here's the point. Either Kitty was in that boat or he wasn't. Either he was in the photo or he wasn't. Both can't be true. We live in a world that has gone crazy with the idea that everything is true and nothing is true. You know, we've got a... Um, it's very simple logic. Either the Hindus are right or the Jews are right. Both could be wrong, but both can't be right. Either there are 330 million gods, as some of the Vedas say and the Hindu writings say, or the Jews are right that there's only one God. Both can't be right. Both may be wrong, but both can't be right. Either the Muslims are right when they say God has no son, as you find on the uh, Dome of the Rock that's uh, written in Arabic in numerous ways on the inside of the Dome of the Rock, uh, that God has no son. Or John 3.16 is right. For God so loved this world that he gave his only begotten son. They both can't be right. They both could be, well in this case, he either has it or he doesn't. He either exists or he doesn't. They both can't be right. Either you're justified by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross and justified by faith in the finished work of Christ on the cross alone, or you've got to work to earn your salvation. Both can't be right. Yet we live in a world that is so afraid of offending people that we're now teaching that everything is true. At the same time, when we're teaching that everything is true, you know what else we're doing? We're teaching that nothing is true. Let me show you a uh, poem. This comes out of, uh, you'll find this poem, it's embodied in Jainism, Hinduism, it's also in Buddhism. It's called The Elephant and the Blind Men. Um, the poem here is actually uh, an English translation and it's made to rhyme by a guy named Jonathan Sachs back in the 1800s. Um, but it kind of embodies where we're at today in the world with our thoughts of the truth. You know, and again, our academic institutions, our media, have pushed forth an agenda where the world is made up of no absolutes. So here's a story of six blind men who hear about this thing called an elephant coming into the village. And they want to go find out what the elephant is all about because they've heard lots about it, but they've never actually seen one or experienced one. So the six blind men go down to experience the elephant. And here's the poem. It was six men of Indostan, to learning much inclined, who went to see the elephant, though all of them were blind, that each by observation might satisfy his mind. You ever hear this poem? Yeah, they teach this in sociology classes and uh, cultural anthropology class. By the way, before we continue reading the poem, I think cultural anthropology is the most ironic set of coursework you can do in, a, in an academic institution, a university level. You know why I say that? Do you know who started the field of cultural anthropology? British missionaries in the 1700s. 
British missionaries started to teach the concept that in order to reach the unreached people groups with the gospel, you need to learn their culture, you need to learn their language, you need to learn their practices. So in the 1700s, the British missionary societies started to study, started to formulate study around cultural anthropology. You study the people, you study the language of the people you're trying to reach. Now the ironic thing to me today is, if you go to a typical university, you couldn't find a more godless set of coursework. They talk about the misogynistic Christian religion. They don't realize the whole field was started by people who loved people around the world, missionaries who were trying to reach those people with the gospel of peace and truth in the Lord Jesus Christ. Anyway, so this poem shows up a lot in those type of courses. It's a great poem. So the first blind man approached the elephant and happening to fall against his broad and sturdy side at once began to call. Oh, bless me, but the elephant is nothing but a wall. The second blind man, feeling of the tusk, cried, Ho, oh, what have we here? So very round and smooth and sharp, to me tis mighty clear. This wonder of an elephant is nothing but a spear. The third approached the animal and happening to take the squirming trunk within his hands, thus boldly up and spake. I see, quoth he, the elephant is nothing but a snake. The fourth reached out an eager hand and felt about the knee. What most this wondrous beast is like is mighty plain, quoth he. Tis clear enough the elephant is nothing but a tree. The fifth who chanced to touch the ear said, E'en the blindest man can tell what this resembles most. Deny the fact who can. This marvel of an elephant is nothing but a fan. And then you have the last guy. The sixth no sooner had begun about the beast to grope than seizing on the swinging tail that fell within his scope. I see, quoth he, the elephant is nothing but a rope. The poem goes on to say how all six of them began to argue. One saying, I'm telling you, this elephant is a wall. The other one saying, no, 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 it's a spear. No, 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 it's a rope. I'm telling you, this elephant is a snake. No, you all got it wrong. It's a fan. You all got it wrong. It's a tree. And they argue and they argue and then they argue. And so the poem goes on in Jainism and Hinduism and Buddhism that while this argument is taking place, a wise man comes to them. They began to argue about the elephant, and every one of them insisted that he was right. It looked like they were getting agitated. A wise man passing by, or was passing by, and he saw this. He stopped and asked them, what is the matter? They said, we cannot agree to what the elephant is. Each one of them told what he thought the elephant was. The wise man calmly explained to them, all of you are right. The reason every one of you is telling it differently, because each one of you touched a different part of the elephant. So actually the elephant is all the things you thought it is. Oh, everyone said, there was no more fight. They felt happy that they were all right. And so the academic institutions of the United States and the great West and so our, me our wonderful media tells you, you know what? We're all right. We each approach God in our own way. They're all different paths to Him. Doesn't matter what your truth is. All truth is personal truth. It don't matter. Everyone's right. Except here's the problem. What's the problem with what the wise man said to them? He lied to them. The elephant is not a wall. The elephant is not a spear. The elephant is not a snake. The elephant is not a tree. It's not a fan. It's not a rope. What is the elephant? It's a fat animal. Right? 
It's an animal. He never told them what the elephant was. They're all running off thinking they know what an elephant is, and they're completely wrong. He's none of those things. None of those things. We're so busy worrying about offending others, they were afraid to share the gospel and afraid to speak the truth. And so these men of Indostan disputed loud and long, each in his own opinion exceeding stiff and strong, though each felt he was in the right, yet all were in the wrong. I don't have any problem with these bumper stickers. They're trying to promote peace, right, and harmony, and we don't want to go out and kill each other. I totally get that. But part of the problem with this whole philosophy of, you know, everything is equivalent, is it takes God out of the equation. It makes man the final arbiter of what's true and what's not true. And let's just suppose for a second that God has an opinion on the thing. Let's just suppose for a second that God gets to determine what's right and what's not right. He's the arbiter of truth, not us. He gets to decide what is truth. He's the one who created it in the first place. And here's the very simple truth. Jesus Christ said this in John chapter 8. The truth is knowable. Look at what he says here. Jesus said to those Jews who believed him, If you abide in my word, you are my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. You know what he's saying there? The truth is knowable. It's possible to know the truth. And you know what else he's saying there? He's telling you where to look for it. Where is he telling you to look for the truth? Right here. Right here, right? So you want to know what's true? You want to know God's opinion of things? You want to know reality? You've got to go here. Um, I mentioned that I work for uh, Morgan Stanley. One of my first jobs, second job, was the cash disbursements area. And uh, every day Morgan Stanley would move, get a load of this, Morgan Stanley is not the biggest bank in the world. You know, Citibank's bigger than us. Chase is bigger than us. Bank of Tokyo is bigger than us. But every night back in 1996, Morgan Stanley would move just cash. We'd move $40 billion of cash into and out of our accounts. Think about that. $40 billion, 10 times that number in securities. And this bank has got a lot of money. It's richer than a lot of third world countries, right? Now, let me, want you to think about this. Morgan Stanley has lots of traffic involving clients that have accounts at Citibank. So I'm going to basically be sending a wire instruction, a wire instruction to Citibank, and I'm going to tell them, hey, you know what, I need you to move $150 million out of my account right now. Do you think Morgan Stanley is going to make sure that Citibank knows it's them when they send that wire? There's a whole schema in, in the world of banking. It's called authentication. You ever heard of, if you ever wire money overseas, you're using the SWIFT system. SWIFT system is the internet before there was the internet. It's this glorified, authenticated, message-based system where one bank can talk to another bank, and you know what? Those banks know that it's each other they're talking to because they exchange something called authentication keys. I know a key. My computers know it. I don't even know it. My computers know an encryption key that no one else in the world knows except for Citibank. And nobody in Citibank knows that key except their mainframe does. They've got a set of encryption keys that we've exchanged at some point in the past through an encrypted creed that nobody, no human knows, but the two banks know, the two bank systems know, and we send wires back and forth. It's an authenticated message. We've made it so that Citibank knows for sure I'm sending them a wire instruction, and they know for sure that they got it from us. It's authenticated. So if two banks can do it, 
If two banks can do it, and this happens every single day, you better believe the God of the universe can do it. How does the God of the universe authenticate to you that the Bible is his word? It's something that this book has that no other book, the Koran does not have it, the sacred Vedas do not have it, no other ancient religious book has it. The Book of Mormon doesn't have it. You know what this book has? Look at Revelation 19, verse 10. I fell at his feet to worship him. This is John. You're going to love John, right? John's so overwhelmed by the angel that he loses his composure and he starts to worship the angel and the angel freaks out. The angel said to him, See that you do not do that. What are you, nuts? I just added that. He didn't really say that. Um, that's a New York angel talking, right? I am your fellow servant and of your brethren of, who have the testimony of Jesus. Worship God, for the testimony of Jesus is what? Spirit of prophecy. The Bible has prophecy in it. It's authenticated itself. The Bible knows things before they occur. Only a being, only a being that is not confined to this time-space-matter universe would be able to know things in the future. A being who is not bound by time, a timeless being alone can know the future. The only one who knows the future with absolute certainty is God, not even angels. You know what angels do to figure out the future? They pour through this book trying to figure things out. They don't know the future. Think about how many things the psychics have gotten wrong. By the way, it's a joke. Um, this is for the little bit older brethren in the uh, room here. Malcolm. Um, <laughs> when I was growing up, the big rage was this psychic known as Gene Dixon, right? Jean Dixon was supposedly famous because she had predicted that John F. Kennedy was going to be assassinated in Dallas. Well, actually, when you read what she wrote, she didn't exactly say that. She never predicted that John F. Kennedy was going to be assassinated in Dallas, although everybody seems to report that. What she actually said is that the president who wins the 1960 election will die in office. We say, that's still pretty good. He was killed in office. Isn't that pretty good? Well, no, not when you look at the stats. Do you know that seven of the previous ten presidents had either died in office or had gotten seriously ill and then died shortly after they left office? She was playing the odds. By the way, who did she think was going to win the 1960 election? She predicted that Richard Nixon would win the 1960 election. You're playing odds. The Bible is the only book that predicts things, in some cases hundreds of years, in some cases thousands of years ahead of time with absolute specificity. Anyway, digressing. The truth is knowable. Jesus Christ is telling you that the truth is knowable and that you're able to find the truth in his word. That's Jesus Christ's words. He is saying this. These are some scary stats. This is from a book that Josh McDowell uh, produced. He quotes some research done by Vody Balcom. Um, not real familiar with him, but uh, I guess he's done some real good work in uh, studies of truth and how teens perceive truth. These surveys are all taken from evangelical teenagers. Churches who go, or teenagers who go to evangelical churches, churches that would identify themselves as evangelical. So these are not stats from the general public. These are stats from youth groups associated with evangelical churches. These stats are scary. Look at this. 
According to recent research, somewhere between 70 and 88% of Christian teenagers are leaving the church by their second year in college. Over 80% of teens who claim to be born again do not believe in the existence of absolute truth. By the way, if you don't believe in the existence of absolute truth, I doubt you're born again. A recent Barna survey focused on finding out how teens' beliefs differ from their parents and found that 63% don't believe Jesus is the son of the one true God, 58% believe all faiths teach equally valid truths, 51% don't believe Jesus rose from the dead, 65% don't believe Satan is a real entity, 68% don't believe the Holy Spirit is a real entity. I'm telling you, if you don't believe the Holy Spirit is a real entity, you don't, know the, you don't know the true God of the universe. By the way, 58% believe all faiths teach equally valid, valid uh, truths. You know, the Bible gives these indications of what governs all the world's religions. There are certain phrases that show up in the book of Psalms, and it says, you want to understand the world's religions? Here, watch this. Go, go to Psalm 115 for a second. By the way, the exact same verbiage shows up several times in the Old Testament. You can see it again in Psalm 135. But go to Psalm 115. Let's read verse 3 on. Our God is in heaven. He does whatever He pleases. Their idols... He's talking about the pagans, are silver and gold, the work of men's hands. They have mouths, but they do not speak. Eyes they have, but they do not see. They have ears, but they do not hear. Noses they have, but they do not smell. They have hands, but they do not handle. Feet they have, but they do not walk. Nor do they mutter through their throat. And then you get to verse 8. If you want to understand what governs every religion in the world, it's verse 8. Read it. Those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. There's a scriptural principle that comes through here. It's a scary one. You take on the traits of that which you worship. You become like the thing you believe in. This is a tough teaching. It's absolutely true. The reason why Muslims are practicing the practices that they do is because Allah is presented a certain way in the Quran. Read what the Quran has to say about women and you'll understand the misogynism of Islam. Right? If you think about the Hindus, the Hindus believe in what? That you're trying to attain nirvana. Right? In other words, you've got to purge in this life the things that you're paying for in previous lives. Try to attain the moksha. Do you ever wonder why it is that Christian aid societies flourish in India and there are no Hindu equivalents for it? Tough teaching, right? Why do the Christian aid societies flourish in India and there's no Hindu equivalent of it? If your theology says you must pay in this life for what you did in a previous life, and if I help you, I'm hurting you, I'm delaying your attaining of nirvana, am I going to set up great aid societies to help you? Think about it. By the way, a diabolical thing hatched in hell to keep millions suppressed is the idea that you must suffer in this life for sins done in previous life to attain nirvana. Why do you think it is that the great genocides that have occurred in the history of the world have all occurred under a similar type of regime? And what is that regime? They're all atheistic states. The Chinese 
the, the, uh, the, the Soviet Russians are responsible for more genocide. And by the way, let's talk about the Nazis for a second. If you go to Auschwitz, anybody ever been to a concentration camp? There's a real disturbing slogan in one of the rooms where the German barracks were, Nazi barracks were, where Hitler says, in order to make the Germans invincible, I had to crush them of their what? Their religion. I have to make them irreligious. The reason why all the atheistic states, why the great genocides of the 20th century occurred under atheistic states and they didn't occur under other states, you are, you take on the traits of that which you believe. The atheistic states are based on evolution. The idea of survival in the fittest. Survival of the fittest. You can't get around it. Um, it's theorized that in the peasant, uh, what the Chinese did with the peasants, maybe as many as 60 million Chinese that were killed under Mao Zedong. By the way, I think it's laughable when you see these people talk about how great Mao Zedong was. Let's ask the Chinese peasants. Anyway, I'm digressing here. Josh McDowell said recently that most evangelical Christian youth in the United States no longer believe in absolute truth. That number, 52%, said there was no absolute truth of uh, teens in 1991, 62% in 94, 78% in 99. That number reached 91% in 2002. By the way, you know what the figure is today? It's in the 80s. We've turned the corner. We've actually turned the corner. Isn't that kind of cool? I mean, it's terrible, right? 88% don't believe in absolute truth and we're happy about it. But we've turned a corner. By the way, the writings in this book, he theorizes why it is that Christian teenagers or teenagers who identify with the evangelical churches are starting to turn is because they've seen all the rotten things happening in the world during the last 10 years. And it's causing them to turn back towards a need for something that's real. Anyway. So scripture teaches that the truth is knowable and it's found in God's word. And that's the teaching of Jesus Christ. The Bible teaches that God is a God of truth. For I proclaim the name of the Lord, ascribe greatness to our God. He is the rock, his work is perfect, for all his ways are justice, a God of truth. And without injustice, righteous and upright is he. Our God is a God of truth. Is Allah a God of truth? Allah is capricious. Allah is capricious. Allah told Muhammad it was okay to lie. Read it in the Quran. His uh, wife caught him uh, engaged in a transgression with the servant girl. And he vowed before Allah, you see this in the Quran, he vowed before Allah that he would never cheat on his wife again. A week later, his wife catches him. This is all in the Quran. A week later, his wife catches him. She says, you vowed before Allah that you would never cheat on me again. How dare you do this? You know what he says to her? Allah told me it was okay for me to break my vow with you. What did the God of Israel do to Joshua when they made that treaty with Gibeonites? Gibeonites? Gibeonites, right? What did God tell the children of Israel to do when they found out the Gibeonites were, had deceived them? They were stuck in the treaty. Why? Because God is a God of truth. He's a God of His Word. And we have to be like Him. By the way, did you ever think, you know, say you take on the traits of that which you believe? Read 1 Corinthians 13. You know, um, the definition of love, right? The great definition of love in the Bible is 1 Corinthians 13. You rip the word love out of that chapter and you stick the word Christ wherever you see the word love. It's an amazing read, if you know what I'm talking about. Anyway, um, 
And the wild thing is not only is our God a God of truth, I lost my Bible, not only is our God a God of truth, He wants you to know the truth. God wants you to know the truth. For this is good and acceptable in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all men to be saved and to come to knowledge of the truth. He wants you to know the truth. He wants you to know it. This is 2 Timothy 3, 16 and 17. All scripture is given by inspiration of God and is profitable for doctrine, for reproof, for correction, for instruction in righteousness, that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. The word inspiration here is, num- let me uh, get the right Greek. Not that you want to be bored with a whole bunch of Greek, but it's uh, theonoustos. It means literally God breathed. If I can get a little theological for a second here. C.I. Schofield puts it this way. Without impairing the intelligence, individuality, literary style, or personal feelings of the human authors, God supernaturally directed the writing of Scripture so that they recorded in perfect accuracy his comprehensive and infallible revelation to man. If God himself had done the writing, the written word would be no more accurate and authoritative than it is. Sure enough, John is writing the Gospel of John, and Paul is writing this letter to Timothy. No doubt about it. And God is using their personalities, and they're choosing those words. And yet, you know what the scripture's saying here? At the same time that Paul is choosing those words, who's really choosing those words? Every word put there by God. Every word put there by God. If every part of, but does it say most, most scripture? It says all, right? If every part of scripture is inspired by God, uniquely selected by God, then there's a whole bunch of ramifications that come from that. Nothing is in the Bible by accident. Whatever things were written, were written before, or before were written for our learning that we through the patience and comfort of the scriptures might have hope. There's nothing in the Bible by accident. Another ramification of this is even the things that are left out are left out on purpose. Uh, your word is very pure and your law is truth. Sorry, went the wrong way. Here's the wild thing. Word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing into the division of joints and narrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and the intents of the heart. The Bible presents itself. God is saying that this book is alive. Now, it's not going to sprout legs and run across the floor, right? But it's alive. It's alive for all time. It's just as relevant to you and your circumstances as it is to a Roman soldier who comes to faith in Christ while watching the crucified greater in front of him. Um, it's just as relevant. Now, let me show you this. Let's see if this works. All right, scan your eyes back and forth. How many look, does it look like it's moving? Does anybody not look like it's moving? <laughs> All right. That failed miserably. <laughs> All right, how many know this movie? What movie is this? Gladiator. What guy has not seen Gladiator? I know some of the guys haven't seen it. Have you seen Gladiator? The older guys? You haven't seen Gladiator. All right. Have the girls all seen Gladiator? You haven't seen Gladiator? You have seen it. You like Russell Crowe? All right. The opening scene of the movie. Remember the opening scene of the movie? Let's watch the opening scene of the movie.
this point, Dave Bosworth is thinking, why in the world is he showing Gladiator to my assembly here? I'll tell you why in a second. I hope it's not too dark. Is there a way to kill the lights up there? All right, let's see. talking about a battle. That scene is uh, taking place about 180 AD. And while the characters are all fictional, the battle is not. The battle is an actual recounting of a battle by the Roman army as they're fighting up near the Black Forest along the Danube, actually, uh, against two Gothic tribes. The two tribes that they're fighting are the Marcomanni and the Quadi tribes. These are your Gothic people. That day, 180 AD, the Germans, what would become the German peoples, defeated by the Roman army. And for about 100 years, the Germans reform. About 100 years later, they start to raid back into the Roman Empire, and they start hitting Roman Empire near Turkey. They start to grab people out of Turkey. These very people that Russell Crowe is fighting in the movie. Now, here's the interesting thing. Here's where it gets really interesting. These German tribes raid down into Turkey, and there's a, a guy there by the name of Ulfilus. And Ulfilus wants to reach the Gothic people. So he and his family relocate to Germany. And he sits down, and he realizes that they don't have a written form of their language. At best, they have some runic characters, but they don't have a written language. So what he starts to do is he starts to learn their language and he takes Latin characters and some Greek characters and he puts their language into written form. And for the first time in history, the Gospel of John is translated into what would become German. The first time German was ever penned in written form was to translate the Bible. And you all realize that English is a descendant tongue of German, right? So what I'm saying to you is you all owe your literacy. You all owe your literacy to a Bible translation effort. Now here's why I'm using this to illustrate the verse we just read. Let me show you something. This is the verse we just read. Not that. 
The word of God is living and powerful and sharper than any two-edged sword. Scripture says it's living, it's alive. It's powerful, sharper than any two-edged sword. So this Gothic tribe starts to read the Gospel of John. This blows me away. I didn't mention something about Ophelus. History tells us that Ophelus didn't believe in Jesus Christ as the God of the universe. He was an Arian. He thought Jesus Christ was a created being. But the Gothic tribe, they read this, John chapter 1. They read John 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And then they read down in verse 14, this very one that is God in verse 1, He became flesh and dwelt among us. So you know what the Gothic tribe did within 10 years? They got rid of Ophelus. But they kept the word. They said, you're wrong. Thanks for translating the scriptures for us. But you're wrong. He is God. Tell me that verse is not true. The word of God does not come back void. This word has changed the world. It's governed the column of human progress. And everyone sitting here today owes their literacy to this book. By the way, it's been theorized by cultural anthropologists. If you ever read this thing of the ethnologue, which now is started by British missionaries, now it's run by the New York Times. Over half of the world's languages, over half of the world's languages, how many languages are in the world? About 7,000. Over half of the world's languages in written form, guess who put them there? Christian missionaries. Anyway. Um, so God wants you to know the truth. There is such a thing as truth. And God's word lives and abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. I just want to mention this, not spend too much time on it, um, just so you know this. But you're going to hear in your schools, and you're going to hear on the History Channel, by people who don't know what they're talking about, that the Bible's like the game of telephone. By the way, it's so funny. Um, you just had an illustration in the past week of the game of telephone on Twitter, right, and on the Internet. So the FBI, the FBI releases two photos of the guys who they think are the bombers, and it turns out they are the bombers, right? But because there's an incorrect posting by one of the newspapers up in Boston, all the wrong photos are grabbed as well. So all of a sudden racing around, the, did you get any of these photos, by the way? They're, they're the photos that were racing around the internet over the past few days of the people they were looking for, most of them were wrong. It was like the game of telephone on the internet. You know the game of telephone works? You get a bunch of little kids, right? I remember doing this in second grade. You get a bunch of little kids, and you, tell, you take the one kid out of the room and you tell him a story, or her a story. And then the next kid is called out of the room, and the first kid is supposed to relay the story to the second kid, and so on and so forth. Each kid is called out of the room. And by the time you get to the last kid, what's happened, right? The goose that laid the gold and the egg became the green granny who had gray hair or something like that, right? A lot of times you'll be taught, I remember I was taught this at the University of Notre Dame, Catholic institution of all places. Catholic institution that is leading the world in the understanding of the Dead Sea Scrolls, which is screaming out that the Bible is authentic, it hasn't changed over time, and they taught us that the Bible's like the game of telephone. Things have been added in, things have been taken away. Well, I got news for you. That verse refutes that. The Word of God lives and abides forever. Heaven and earth will pass away, but my words will by no means pass away. You know what else refutes that? Reality. History refutes it. The evidence that the Bible has been kept intact is so overwhelming. It's not like the game of telephone. 
You know, Jewish scribes, when they were copying the Bible, they knew exactly how many words and letters were in the book of Genesis. Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. This is in the Hebrew Masoretic text. 79,847 words in the first five. By the way, they did this for every book in the Old Testament. Before we had the ages of printing press, which comes about, what, in the 1400s or something like that, Masoretic's, Masoretic scribes had such exacting processes for copying the Bible. They would actually pen in the outlines, in the notes around the thing, they would say, this page ought to have this many words on it, and the middle letter of each line ought to be this. And they knew exactly how many verbs and exactly how many nouns, and that's what all these notes are. These guys did such a good job of copying the scriptures. We've got a copy out of Ethiopia of the first five books of the Bible. And we've got a copy out of Russia of the first five books of the Bible dating back almost a thousand years, taken in two different parts of the world. And when they added, they compared them, two totally different traditions. One's out of an Ethiopian uh, uh, tradition of copying. The other's out of this Russian tradition of copying. When they compared the two copies and they added up all the letters, you know how much they were off by? The Ethiopian copy had 304,811 letters. The Russian copy had 304,805 letters. And by the way, you know what the differences were? Spelling. You know, we spell the word color, C-O-L-O-R. How do the British spell it? Over a thousand years, the only thing that had changed was that. The Dead Sea Scrolls, by the way, um, I'll show you a picture of them. And I'm just making the point that your Bible's not changed. Just look at the evidence. Uh, the Dead Sea Scrolls were found to date. So far, we have found something like um, 100,000 fragments of different portions of the Bible, 900 scrolls uh, completely intact. They're all copies of all different parts of the Old Testament. Um, overwhelming agreement with your Masoretic text. I don't want to belabor it too much, but just trust me. If you look into this kind of thing, don't buy the argument that the Bible has changed over time. It's just not true. The people who are saying this to you heard it somewhere in college and they think it's true, but they haven't looked at the evidence. You look at the evidence. Pretty overwhelming. Um, by the way, the oldest copy of Scripture ever found is this thing right here. And you know who found it? One of us. It's found by an assembly archaeologist in uh, Hinnom Valley in Jerusalem. A guy named Gordon Franz. I think I showed this last time. Do you realize everything we know about Caesar and his writings comes from ten copies? The earliest one of which is 900 AD. A gap of over 940 years from when he wrote to the earliest copy we have. Everything we know about the writings of Plato, taught in every philosophy class in the United States, everything we know about the writings of Plato come from 20 copies, the oldest of which dates to 900 A.D., or 1,240 years after he lived. Everything we know about the writings of Aristotle, 1,420-year gap. Tacitus, 1,000-year gap. Now, here's the deal. When scriptural uh, authorities are looking at this, people who study ancient manuscripts, and they look at the writings of Plato, they can say, hand on heart, we're pretty sure we know what Plato wrote. Why can they do that? because they've got 20 copies that date to about 900 A.D. that are in different parts of the Mediterranean world. And they look at those 20 copies and they basically say the same thing. So historians will say, we think we know with pretty fair assuredness that Plato wrote his works and that this is what they seem like, this is what his works were. Nobody really questions it. Well, think about your Bible. 
I've got 20,000 copies of different portions of the New Testament that date within 300 years of when the New Testament was first penned. I've got 20,000 copies found all over the Middle East, found all over Europe, that are written in different languages, no less, and they all basically agree. Do you know we have a copy, this blows me, we have a copy of the portion of the Gospel of Matthew called the Magdalena Papyrus that we think dates to right about 60 or so A.D. The Gospel of Matthew, depending upon who you follow, is either written in 40 A.D. or 55 A.D. We've got a copy that's just a few years older than when Matthew wrote it. And by the way, the New Testament wasn't even finished yet. We've got copies of it. The Bible's not changed. Don't believe the nonsense that you hear on the History Channel when they say, oh, things have crept in and things have been taken away. It's just not so. One last thing. In Romans 1. Concerning his son Jesus Christ our Lord, who was born of the seed of David according to the flesh and declared to be the son of God with power according to the spirit of holiness by the resurrection from the dead. That word declared there in Greek really means proven. The Christian faith is based on facts. The Christian faith, some of uh, Dave and I we used to have this professor named Dave Reed. And he said, God never asks you to throw your brains out. He's given you evidence to show that what he's saying is true. The Bible is a faith that's proven by evidence. You're not asked to throw in your, your brains out. In fact, you know why I think we're losing so many of our teenagers? I don't think we're challenging them to dig into this stuff. You know what I think would be a good assignment? Ask your teenagers to reconcile Bible difficulties. Why, does it one, why is it that one gospel says that Jesus healed a blind man going into Jericho, and another gospel says Jesus healed a blind man when he was leaving Jericho? Why do those passages seemingly contradict? Now, you know it's inspired by God. There's no mistake in it. So what's the explanation? Challenge them to go figure it out. Show them that the Christian faith is a critical faith that can stand up to scrutiny. In fact, these other faiths can't. I told you I was going to tell you a dog story. By the way, the answer <laughs> on the blind man thing is that one gospel, Matthew is writing, to, I think it's Matthew, he's writing to the Jews. They think of Old Testament Jericho as Jericho. But Luke, who's writing to Greeks, they think of New Testament Jericho as Jericho. So Jesus is actually healing the blind man as he's walking out of Old Testament Jericho and into New Testament Jericho. But the skeptics, they say the Bible has a contradiction. It doesn't have a contradiction. I'll tell you a dog story, right? Talk showed dogs. Saw the dog in both videos, right? Was the dog in the Roman soldier video? Was it in Gladiator? He had a dog that ran along with him, right? I had a dog. Um... I had a gorgeous dog. She was a uh, Belgian-German Shepherd mix. Imagine a German Shepherd, but all black. Gorgeous. Gorgeous, gorgeous dog. Uh, when my father died when I was five years of age, and believe it or not, talk about a lousy day, my mother comes out of the hospital, and the car was stolen. Right? So talking about a lousy day. She comes out, the car is stolen. So my uncles tried to go find this car. Who knows where it ended up? But um, two things happened around this time, around my father's death, that uh, would have a bearing for a few years. One was that my mother went out and got us a dog. This little, well, actually the dog was a, a baby of a guard dog in a, a garage, a gas station. So there's this fierce uh, dog, had this litter of puppies, and one of them was this little 
cute shepherd. I got along, even though I was five, I got along real well with the garage dog dog, the guard dog at the garage. You know what I'm saying, right? I got along real well with the dog that watched the garage, and I would play with her, and she let me have one of the puppies. That's what I always used to think, that the dog gave the puppy to me. It, I learned later on that it was the garage guy who gave the puppy to me, but anyway, so I get this little fuzzy thing, this little fuzzy thing that's going to not be little for long, but my mother, so she now has no car. My mother didn't know how to drive too well. She had her license. But the one thing that my father used to say to her is, Lola, you're not a good driver. <laughs> so you need to get a car that has a big engine. I'm mixing two stories, the dog and the car, but it'll come together in a second. You need to get a car that has a big engine because when you're getting on the highway, you need a car that's going to get you in front of those semis bearing down on you. So if anything ever happens to me, get a car with a big engine. So my mother only knows one thing about cars, that she's supposed to get a car with a big engine to follow what my father's advice was. So she goes to the Pontiac dealership. This is 1972. Muscle car era, right? So she goes to the Pontiac dealership. Our, our, uh, our salesman had the same name as the guy on Fox, uh, Bill Riley, believe it or not. Um, so she goes up to Bill Riley, and she says, I... I gotta get a new car, or I gotta get a car. She's gonna get a new one. She's gonna use one. So um, he says, "All right, what do you want? You got two little kids. You get your sedan or, or what have you." And she goes, "I want the car with the biggest engine." So the salesman says, "No, you don't. You don't want a car with the big. You know what these things look like? Because you, you want a normal, like a Bonneville, you know, something like that. You don't want a car with a monster." And she goes, "I want the car with the biggest engine." She says, well, "Let me just show it to you." So he has one of the guys pull out a 1969 Pontiac GTO. You know, the engine sticking out of the hood, the spin on the back. Guy comes up, you know, this monster engine rolling along, pulls it in front. My mother looks at it and she goes, I love it. I want that car. So my childhood, it was my mother driving this monster muscle car. 454 engine. I mean, anyway, this all plays into the story with the dog. So my first trip in this new car was to go to the garage to pick up the little dog. So I get this dog, and the dog is now my dog. I'm five years old. Here's this little dog. She rides in my lap. She's now been weaned. She rides in my lap, and we go home. And this dog was a great dog, great dog. I'd take the dog for a walk. And my mother started to train the dogs in German. The dogs, we always had dogs, she trained them in German. I don't know why. But so I'd walk along and I never took the dog on a leash. You're probably not allowed to do that down, down here, right? Or you have to leash the dog. Well, I'd take the dogs and we'd walk. And all I'd do is say stuff to it in German and it would follow me. Just little dog. First day I bring it home, my cat meets the dog. Now I had this big old tomcat. You know, we didn't fix the animals back then. So this cat just came. Got enormous. I figure half the neighborhood was its babies running around. Anyway, the dog meets the cat, and the cat looks at the dog, and the cat doesn't really mind the dog. And until dinner time comes, so my mother lays out the food, and the dog comes running over to the food, starts to take a bite of the food, and the cat looks at it, and the cat hissed once in its life at the dog. The dog drops to its belly, backs away, and I'm telling you, years later, when this dog was 50 times the size of the cat, the cat always ate first. Dog, the, dog, the cat ruled the roost. Anyway, take the dog for the walks. 
we'd fly around these blocks. The dog was just quick, racing along. One day, the paper girl shows up. She has a new Irish setter. And, you know, she and I had a little rivalry, me and the paper girl. I had my German Shepherd. She had her Irish setter. She'd bring her dog over to me, and she'd say, oh, I want to show you the new trick that I got Muffy to do. So she'd take the dog. She'd put a graham cracker on the dog's nose. The dog would sit there. Then she'd snap its fingers. The dog would flip the graham cracker in the air and then catch it with its mouth. What do you think would happen if I took a graham cracker and put it near my dog's nose? I'm losing my fingers, right? Dog was a funny dog, brave dog, a smart dog. One night, my cousins were staying over at my house, and they had a newborn. And somehow in the middle of the night, they had these crazy pens where they had like the wire, the mesh netting, you know, the mesh netting that goes on the side of the pen that the baby was sleeping with. The baby got its head trapped in the middle of the night. You know, a dog woke everybody up, saving that little kid's life. Smart dog. Gutsy dog, funny dog. One day, my mother's driving. And my mother used to, we are in school, my sister and I. Mother's driving this monster GTO on the highway. And she'd keep the windows rolled down in the back, so just enough so the dog could get some air. Actually, keep the window rolled all the way down. Dog wouldn't leap out, don't, don't get worried. The dog would stick its head out the window, you know, get the air. At a certain point, the dog goes, to sleep in the back. Mother's driving along. Now, the way we figure this happened was she must have been going from one highway to another, and it was a little dirt road. And she was a slow driver. She'd drive this monster vehicle, but barely take it above 40 on the highway, right? She's one of those people you just, and she'd be in the left lane. You know, you just want to, you know. So she's going on the little, some of, the, some of you are those type of folks, right? <laughs> So she gets on this little dirt road, and this carload of guys comes behind her. And we figure they didn't realize how old she was. They see this monster car, somebody they're going to challenge, right? So they're behind her, and they're blowing their horn at her. And mother's driving along. And at a certain point, they zipped around her, and they started to scream at my mother. And they're screaming at my mother, and my mother goes, I'll be quiet. You know, these guys got so mad. They ran her off the road. And the four guys jumped out of the car. They started screaming at my mother. And my mother, you know, is not sure what's going on. And one of the guys made a mistake. He pounded the hood of the car. And my mother says all she remembers was these two pointy ears in the rearview mirror <laughs> and this black fuzzy flash. <laughs> and the next thing she saw, the guy go like this, uh-oh. Dog took him down by the throat. Remember, its mommy was a guard dog, right? So the dog takes this guy down by the throat. The other three guys, they jump in the car. This dog's going to town on this guy. So my mother goes, you know, I thought about... <laughs> she goes, but then I thought that wouldn't be a good idea. So she said, Aktum. Aktum means attention in German. So the dog releases, right? So now this guy, who's just been devoured, right, starts to get up and go. He starts to make his way towards the car, and something distracted the dog, and the dog went at him again and bit him right on the... <laughs> no, on the backside. <laughs> I just realized where you thought I was going with that. I wasn't going there. No. 
So my mother yells to the dog, Aktom again. And the dog releases and comes back to the car with its tail between its legs because it disobeyed my mother second time. You won't save your life, right? Dog jumps in the back, goes right to sleep. This is a great dog. Now you know when you have an animal, right? You know what's coming. You dread it. I had nightmares about this. You know, one day we're going around the block. We used to do it in 10 minutes. It's taken us an hour to do it. I mean, I had to set aside part of my schedule to walk this dog at night. My sister and I had split the walking duties because it just took so long. One day in the middle of the night, or one night, middle of the night, mother's knocking on my door. She says, come and see your dog. I'm going to come look at your dog. So I just knew. You just know. You know, you dread this your whole life. The whole thing's life. So I go and I look at the dog, and the dog, we're pretty sure it had an embolism. It blocked its lower leg, so it was completely paralyzed. And it's trying to get up the stairs, because we'd go to bed with either my sister or I. It was trying to get up the stairs with two legs. So I'm looking at this thing, and I'm like, I can't. It's here. Because you just know, you know? You just know. So I picked this big dog up. Mother gets in the monster GTO, and we drive out to the vets, 3 o'clock in the morning. I'm sure the veterinarian was thrilled to be hearing us at 3 o'clock in the morning. So I take this big old monster dog in, I'm holding this dog, carrying it in. And the vet says, look, your dog is paralyzed. You know, and it's old. You know, I could cut your dog's foot. I'm not even sure if it's bleed. This dog has got no blood going to the extremities. It's time. Now, I don't know if you've ever put an animal down. But basically the way they do it, at least the way they did it this night, was they gave it, they overdose it on anesthesia. They give it an IV and then they load it up on anesthesia so the heart stops beating. So I remember while I'm holding this dog, I'm looking in its eyes, and fuzzy eyes, brown eyes. I remember looking at the dog and while I'm waiting for the poison, the anesthesia to go into the dog's body, I remember thinking to myself, I know it's crazy, but I remember thinking to myself, I wish I could swap blood with the dog. I wish I could do anything. Now, give, give my blood to this dog. I know it sounds so stupid. See, I think the Lord, we're like that dog. We're diseased. Our blood is diseased with sin. And we're dying. In fact, Scripture says we're already dead. Whereas I couldn't do a thing to save my dog. You know what the Lord did, though? The Lord figured out a way to swap blood. He figured out a way to swap blood, and he said, you know what? I don't want Bobby Sullivan to go to hell. I'm going to swap blood with him. I'm going to take my righteous, perfect blood, and I'm going to give it to him, and I'm going to take his disease, sin-filled blood and take it upon myself, and I'm going to provide him with a way to be saved. That's exactly what Jesus Christ did on the cross. He made it so that you could swap blood with him. Now, the really sad thing is so many are saying, thank you, but no thank you. And they're not swapping blood with them. Don't be one of those. The Bible is God's love letter to you, written in blood on a wooden cross. It starts off, dear you, love God. And he knows your name, even if I don't. Don't miss the opportunity to be saved by putting your trust in Jesus Christ. Because you know what? That is the only way to be saved. Last verse for the night. 
This book, which we've already said, is inspired by God, says this in John 14, verse 6. I am the way, the truth, and the life. It's the verse on my mother's headstone. I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. It's not going to be Allah that gets you to heaven. It's not going to be Buddha that gets you to heaven. It's only Jesus Christ. And you know what? Secular humanism ain't going to get you there either. You have to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Apart from that, you're lost. He who does not believe is lost already. Let's up to the Lord in a word of prayer. Our gracious God and loving Heavenly Father, we thank you for uh, the Bible, which is truth. Father, I thank you for this assembly here. I do pray if there's someone here who's never put their trust in the Lord Jesus Christ, that they would understand that you really love them tremendously, and that you may have even arranged things for them to be visiting this assembly, um, to befriend someone here, to come here, um, so that they could hear how much you love them. Father, I pray that they would let you swap blood with them, as it were, that they would put their trust in Jesus Christ and be saved. With all these things up, Father, in thy son's precious name, amen.